Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the toys and fun things which entertain us. As season 13 settles into its third episode, I want to acknowledge the season's new theme, based around the idea of 80s slasher movies. The music, as always, was created by our maestro, Brandon Boone. He tweaked all his knobs and synths and came up with a great 80s-style arrangement of our theme song. And then our senior producer, Phil Mykolski, took over and added all the creepy sound design to turn it into the theme you hear today. We're thrilled these two men pour so much into each season's theme. And did you know Phil has been doing the sound design for an exciting new project which includes a short film and video game? It's called Encodia and the short animated film recently won the Audience Award at a Spanish film festival. The video game, based on the film, is now available as a demo. Included in the game is a voice you might recognize, our own Atticus Jackson. So check the show notes for where you can learn more about Encodia and hear the kind of amazing audio work Phil does while playing this exciting point-and-click game. And speaking of our new theme this season, did you know Brandon has his own page on Bandcamp? There you can find a version of the Season 13 theme and much of the music Brandon composes for the show. Do yourself a favor and check out the masterful work this multi-award winning composer creates each week. Links are in the show notes. So, Phil and Brandon and our entire team have created this week's stories, so I think it's time to begin. So turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet a man who really loves the mall. So much so, in fact, that he's been living in it for quite some time. But in this tale, shared with us by author P.F. McGrail, We discover that living in a mall isn't all it's cracked up to be when it's going out of business. Performing this tale is Peter Lewis. So pay attention when you're out shopping, because you never know who might have gotten their hands on items before you. And it's especially concerning when they've been handled by the kind of guy who can proudly exclaim, I smelled every one. Malls have everything, don't they? So why ever leave? 
People toss out the phrase homeless with such cavalier disregard for what the term actually means. I am not homeless. The mall is my home. The Tavistock Galleria in West Mifflin, Pennsylvania has been my everything for nearly a decade. My day begins before dawn. The J.C. Penny has just so many delicious little nooks and crannies that allow me to make a nest. Do you ever think about what's in the middle of those circular racks in the clothing section? Oh, it's the perfect place for me to hunker down all night on a bed of unsold women's pants. Hmm. Everything's put back in place before the first employees arrive, of course. You can't have anybody knowing about my nest, now can we? Now, I know what you're thinking. Wouldn't it raise suspicions if they found me wandering around before opening? Oh, not a chance. That stolen mall cop uniform has paid dividends many times over. And Joe, the idiot night watchman, really never suspected a thing. I would occasionally pretend to be a mannequin in the display case shadows, but his brain was dimmer than the after-hours lighting. Maybe that's why he disappeared without a trace. Never did find out what happened to him. And they never did replace that one. $913 a month was just too high a price for the Tavistock to monitor itself, it seems. What a sorry state. I'm polite when the situation necessitates it, and I send a good morning wave to Ursula each day when she comes in to open. You see, once a person accepts anything as a routine part of their life, be it a car, a rule, or a smiling man in a mall cop uniform. They stop questioning why that thing is there in the first place. That fact has sustained me for years. Breakfast. Oh, there used to be an amazing Cinnabon in the food court. Hell, there used to be a food court. Now there's just this creepy-ass carousel that children are rightly afraid to touch. Forlorn, I'm stuck munching on cold-cuts sandwiches, remembering the intoxicating aroma of cinnamon and warmth that would greet my day with all the sweet calmness of a warm blanket. For the record, fuck Amazon and your destructive mall-crushing greed. Oh, these malls used to have everything, you see. I could pass the days just getting lost in Tavistock. I'd browse the dicks, sporting goods, pervert, and imagine that I had enough money to buy everything in Jimmy Jazz, and I would just stand outside the Bath and Body Works, smelling. There was nothing like the Victoria's Secret, though. I would come in and pretend to be looking for a gift that I could bestow upon my lovely uh, wife. <laughs> really, I was pre-shopping. Sneaking into a lingerie shop after hours is much easier than you'd think, as long as you live in the mall. <laughs> I was like a kid in a candy store, and to answer your question, yes. I smelled every single item in the store. Hey, you might be wearing one of my pre-sniffed garments right now. 
I promise you that it passed the sniff test. Mm. But I still have to mix things up every once in a while. That's where the holidays come in. I've pilfered a Santa uniform, a bunny outfit, several elf costumes, and a large dog-like get-up that, uh... It has no real explanation. Again, I've become such a fixture that people just accept my presence. I can, I have, spent the entire day in the middle of the mall, greeting children and being photographed by their smiling parents. No one doubts the authenticity of a mall Santa, not even when I smell their kid's hair. Now, I know what you're wondering. Could something as wonderful as the Tavistock Mall really be in jeopardy? I am crying as I describe all this because the answer is yes. As the final doors close for the night, I prepare for bed, knowing that I will soon actually be described as homeless. What a sorry state. While I walk down the abandoned central walkway, avoiding the hot topic even at night, because those people freak me the fuck out, I head to the seldom-used utility closet for a midnight snack. His glassy eyes take a moment to focus on me when I open the door. When semi-consciousness floats back into his brain, the young man is once again seized with terror. Fortunately, he can hardly budge against his restraints. The boy's mutilated hands wouldn't do him any good, anyway, because his fingers were the first to go. I pull out the carving knife and slice a nice thin layer of cold cuts from his belly. Sure, I complain about my sandwiches, but when the meat is fresh, cold cuts really aren't that bad at all. Oh boy, it's a good thing that I knew how to slice out his tongue and sever his vocal cords, or he'd be making a racket. <laughs> and you know what? That tongue made a good fucking sandwich. I pocket the cold cuts and the knife before closing the closet door on the convulsing boy. I do feel bad for him, because this is what happens when you're homeless. <laughs> the decision is final, and it, it's nearly enough to shatter my heart. The Tavistock Galleria is closing forever in June. We all knew it was coming, really, but I just... Oh, I just didn't want to believe it. I couldn't. Though keep in mind that it's nearly enough to shatter my heart. It's not quite sufficient. See, malls have everything, don't they? So why should I ever leave? I can't find a reason, either. But what I can find is another mall. So... I'll be searching the country for the best possible fit. Nearly every major metropolitan area has one, after all. 
I will search until I find one with everything I need. A Cinnabon, a department store, hidden corners, lots of children. Hopefully not a hot topic, but beggars can't be choosers. Well, smell you soon, folks. <laughs> When it comes to being lifted up above the world, you can choose an airplane or a helicopter, but if you want a peaceful and serene way to gaze across the land from above, you really need to try a hot air balloon. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, a mysterious stray balloon descends on a farmer's field, setting off a most disturbing series of events. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson and Jeff Clement. So we might not know how the journey is going to end, but we do know that it all started with a hot air balloon. It appeared on the horizon early one morning at the far edge of Caleb's field. It was just a blip at first, but as it gently wafted closer to my property, it became large enough to blot out the sun. My son Henry was captivated. He'd never seen a hot air balloon in person before. He watched it drift closer and closer, then ran out onto the porch in his dinosaur onesie and watched it creeping even closer. As I drank my coffee, I could hear the sputters of the fire keeping the colorful thing afloat. It would stop and start periodically, bursting into a geyser of flame. My son waved excitedly, but his excitement waned as the hot air balloon drew nearer. Mommy, there's no one in the basket. What do you mean, honey? I stretched down through the open window and peered up at the object in the sky. Henry was right. There was no one manning the hot air balloon. Weird? must have gotten loose. There hadn't been much wind that morning, but if whoever the balloon belonged to hadn't tied it down properly, it could have drifted off on its own. Out of curiosity, I grabbed my keys, buckled my son into the backseat of the truck, and took off after it. The balloon ran out of fuel and landed on the outskirts of my field, where I finally caught up to it. Caleb was already there, sitting on his four-wheeler and scrutinizing it with a perplexed expression on his face as the envelope slowly lost its circular shape and fanned the ground like curtains in the breeze. Morning, Grace. Howdy, Caleb. Any idea what this straggler's doing here? Hmm, not sure. I opened the back door to let Henry out. My excitable son jumped out of the truck and bolted towards the hot air balloon. Thankfully, Caleb grabbed him by the shoulders and held him back. No, son, it's not safe. Might catch fire. Best to keep your distance. I reckon it's a runaway tourist attraction from a few towns over. Hmm, yeah. yeah, that's probably it. Mom, I want to go look. Henry squirmed in Caleb's firm grip. 
The last of the fabric fell and draped over a patch of soil. Should be safe now. I nodded back, and he let Henry go. My boy squealed and ran towards the basket. Careful not to touch the burner, honey. It's still hot. Caleb followed him at a much slower pace. It's quiet this morning. Did you notice? It's never quiet with Henry around. (laughs) I picked up the pace as Henry pulled himself aboard. Though I knew it was impossible, a small part of me was afraid that the balloon would inflate and my son would fly off into the sky, never to be seen or heard from again. Just one of the many ridiculous automatic thoughts you get when you're a parent. Everything has the potential to be dangerous, even when it's not. Thankfully, the hot air balloon stayed right where it was. And Henry ran around in the basket, like it was the best toy he'd ever seen. Now don't you break anything, Henry. I leaned over the side of the basket as Caleb knelt down. He lifted the fabric and inspected it curiously. Everything looks intact. Best not leave it out here, though. Help me put it in the back of my truck. I'll store it in the barn until its owners show up. It probably cost a pretty penny. Someone was bound to come and claim it sooner or later. Maybe I convinced them to take us up for a ride as a thank you. I shooed Henry out of the basket and told him to go sit in the truck while Caleb and I unhooked the fabric, rolled it, and tossed it in the back. We then grabbed the basket and hoisted it up. Shit! Heavier than it looks! Probably because of the burner. I nodded. It wasn't easy, but we managed to force it into the truck. Caleb helped me tie it down while Henry watched eagerly from the back seat. Whew! I wiped my brow. I was definitely having second thoughts about bringing it into the barn. Maybe I'd just throw a tarp on it once I got home and call it a day. Caleb wiped his hands on his jeans. <sighs> well, I best be headed back. The wife will want to know what all the excitement was about. Thanks, Caleb. Y'all take care. He hopped on his four-wheeler and gave me a wave. We both took off in opposite directions. Henry watched as Caleb disappeared on the horizon, and then stared at our rows of corn the rest of the way home, silent until we pulled into the driveway. Mr. Scarecrow's doing a good job today. What? He pointed to the field. Look! I followed his gaze to the scarecrow. For the first time in years, there were no crows cawing around it, or anywhere else on the property. Stupid thing never worked before. Didn't know why it was working now. Well, I'll be damned. Caleb was right. Without the incessant bird calls, and with most of the animals still asleep, it was rather quiet out. So quiet, in fact, that I could hear a low atmospheric hum droning on in the background. The kind of sound you only notice when everything else goes away. It was neither peaceful nor annoying. It was just a constant, low sound, easily drowned out by my son's babbling. Spencer, our farmhand, arrived late that morning. I was already washing the dishes from breakfast when I saw him driving up the road. He had a bad habit of being tardy, so I wasn't exactly surprised when he came running through the door, huffing, puffing, and apologizing. Sorry, ma'am. This is the last time, I swear. I stared at him, unimpressed. 
Did you hear what happened? The hot air balloon? Yeah. I was there. And I still managed to make it back here on time and feed the livestock. Sorry, ma'am. It's fine. Just get to work, all right? He nodded. Just as he was about to step out of the door, however, we heard a booming noise off in the distance. What in tarnation was that? Transformer exploded? Too loud for that. We stepped onto the porch and scanned the area until we spotted a wisp of smoke in the distance. Looks like it's coming from the Burns' field. Probably just the tractor. Mr. Burns has been meaning to replace that old thing for years now. Guess the engine finally gave out. Come on, enough procrastinating. You've got work to do. His eyes stayed locked on the small column of smoke for a moment, but he eventually nodded. Right. Uh, Sorry, ma'am. While Spencer was doing hard labor outside, and Henry was watching cartoons in the other room, I got to work pickling vegetables for storage. It was nearing lunch when Spencer finally showed up again. He was covered in dirt. Took care of the cattle and everything, ma'am. Good work, Spence. I'll have lunch ready in a minute. You mind doing one last thing? There's a tarp in the barn. Be a deer and go get it for me. Sure, ma'am. Where, exactly? In the storage loft. Can't miss it. I'll be back in a minute. I watched him walking into the barn while I tended to the hash browns. Then I waited. Waited for a couple of minutes. Then five. Then ten. What the hell is taking so long? I paced back and forth, irritated. His car was still in the driveway, so I knew he hadn't slipped away to go flirt with some girl in town. With a grunt, I stomped into the barn, expecting to see him lounging about. I was preparing to chastise him for his laziness as I angrily swung the door open. Spence? The ladder was propped up against the wooden loft, the tarp at its feet. I grabbed the tarp and peered up, trying to find Spencer. Spence, what are you playing at? No answer. Spence, lunch is ready. Get down from there. Still nothing. Not even a single creak from the wooden planks. All I could hear was the quiet hum from earlier. This time, slightly louder. If Spencer was up there, he was being perfectly still and quiet. Two things he wasn't too good at. Tarp wedged under my arm. I grabbed the ladder and began climbing the rungs. I was about halfway up when I heard Henry calling. Mom, I'm hungry. Well, I had what I needed. I had the tarp. Spencer could play his stupid games all he wanted for all I cared. I slipped back down and went back inside to serve lunch. Where's Spencer? He's trying a brand new diet of cold eggs and ham. You. We finished eating with no sign of Spencer. I was starting to get a little worried. He wasn't the most reliable guy. He'd often come in late and cut out early, but he'd never run off on me in the middle of the day. And he'd certainly never leave his car behind. I figured I'd go look for him once I was done with the dishes. Henry was playing with his toys, and I was drying off the last of the pots and pans. I probably never would have noticed it if the sun wasn't shining at just the right angle, sending a beam of light from floor to ceiling. Dust particles. They were dancing through the room's air currents. 
However, about a foot below the ceiling, there was a visible decrease in the density. I watched as little flakes swam up and disappeared beyond the invisible border. Weird. I squinted at the empty space. There was something about it that made me feel unnerved. It's like I knew something was wrong but couldn't quite put my finger on what. I looked outside. Not a bird in sight for miles. I thought of the hot air balloon and how empty it had been. I thought about Spencer up in the barn's loft. A bumblebee buzzed by the window, flew up beyond the intangible line, and disappeared. One second it was there, the next it was just... gone. I'm gonna go get my trucks. You ran towards the stairs. I grabbed him so quickly that he nearly fell. Don't go upstairs. I gulped down a knot of apprehension. My eyes were locked on the immaculate separation between the dusty and nearly dustless air. In that moment, I could only think of one thing. Something I'd heard on TV. Dust is mainly comprised of dead skin cells. My blood ran cold. I could see it moving. The separation, I mean. Slowly, like the motion of the sun setting on the horizon. It was subtle, but it was definitely moving down. That's when I realized that humming sound from this morning was getting even louder. We need to get to lower ground. I wasn't even sure what was going on, but I knew that something bad would happen if we were caught under the unseen ceiling slowly dropping on us. We lived on a plateau surrounded by mountains, the lowest point for miles. There was no lower ground except for the cellar. Ducking my head, I grabbed Henry's arm and pulled him towards the door. Mom, what are you doing? I didn't answer. I didn't know what to say. I closed the door tightly, unsure whether or not it would help keep it, whatever it was, out. The mere possibility that it might was enough to bring me some form of comfort. With my free hand, I nabbed the flashlight I kept on the top step and climbed down with my son. It was cold downstairs, perfect for storage. I had shelves with jars full of pickled vegetables, homemade jams, and sealed meats lining every wall. The concrete room wasn't very inviting to a seven-year-old, so Henry usually stayed out unless I asked him to fetch me something. I let out a sigh of relief and took a seat on the bottom of the wooden staircase. I could hear frogs and crickets chirping happily outside. Mom? I didn't answer. Instead, I went over the facts in my mind. Was I exaggerating? What had compelled me to run and hide? An empty hot air balloon? A missing farmhand? Mom! Huh? What, Henry? What's going on? There's... I paused, thinking it over. What was I supposed to tell the kid? I didn't even know what was happening. My eyebrows came together. There's bad air up there. Like a fart? Yeah. Something like that. I hung my head and hid my face behind my hands. I was being stupid. At least, that's what I thought, until the croaks came to a sudden stop. As though all the bullfrogs in the creek out back were suddenly holding their breaths. I found myself holding mine, waiting for the sound to come back. But all I heard were the crickets. Ten minutes later, 
the crickets went silent. The void from the hush that fell over the room couldn't even be filled by the pitter-patter of Henry's feet as he ran in circles, bored out of his mind. My fear only increased as I spotted the jars of meat sitting on the top shelf of the rack in the corner. They were empty. I pointed the flashlight up and looked at the dust particles in its ray. They were disappearing about two feet from the ceiling, just like they had upstairs. And, just like upstairs, the invisible divide was getting lower, that low hum following suit. All I could do was watch, as over the course of an hour, the separation came closer and closer to my son and I, until it became clear that I couldn't sit on the stairs anymore. I pulled Henry into my lap and sat on the stone-cold concrete floor, shaking as I watched the invisible ceiling falling on us. From time to time, I had to jiggle the flashlight to get it working again. I rocked my son gently, praying whatever was falling on us would stop and pull back, praying Henry wouldn't go rogue on me and run out of my grasp. As it came closer, I lay down and told my son to do the same. We had to stay as low to the ground as possible. Don't move, honey. Mom, what are you doing? We're playing dead, honey. If you do good, I'll bake you your favorite cake, but you gotta be perfectly still, all right? Okay. I wasn't sure what to expect. Would it hurt when it happened? Would we disappear like the people in the hot air balloon? Could we somehow be saved? I held my hand against Henry's chest, pinning him down like a seatbelt. I could feel him shivering against the cold stone floor. I was terrified he'd squirm and disappear forever. Should have brought a blanket. No, the blankets were on the second floor. The second floor hadn't been safe. There was a rock digging into my thigh, but I couldn't risk moving. The threshold was closing in on us, making me feel claustrophobic in the wide open room. I dropped the flashlight, closed my eyes tightly, and held my breath for as long as I could. I waited, listening to the droning hum getting louder and louder like a bug circling my ear. I could feel Henry's body heat radiating from his chest. As long as I felt that warmth on my arm, I knew my boy was okay. Even if I disappeared, at least he'd be low to the ground. Low enough to be safe, I hoped. We must have been there for at least an hour, maybe two, before the sound became more distant. Henry had somehow fallen asleep despite the displeasing conditions. I opened my eyes finally gathering enough courage to reach for the flashlight. I flicked it on and carefully aimed it at the ceiling. The dust wasn't back, but I couldn't see a divide anymore. Either we'd been engulfed or the phenomena had passed. I was afraid to move at first, but I finally raised my arm. Nothing happened. I sat up. Still nothing. I let out a sigh of relief. We'd been spared. Somehow, by some miracle, we'd been spared. When the hum completely faded, I cautiously climbed up the stairs, keeping my head low. I opened the door and looked around. The sound was gone. The invisible divide gone with it. It was over. After waking Henry and warming him up, I headed out to the barn. It was empty. No birds, no livestock. Not even a single fly buzzing around the cow manure. 
Every single animal on my farm had gone missing. We got in the truck and headed towards town. As we passed the Burns' farm, I saw their crop duster crash to pieces in the field. Must have been the explosion Spencer and I had heard earlier. I stopped to check, but the plane was empty. I knocked on the Burns' door, but received no answer. I drove to Caleb's farm and tried them. No answer. I drove to town. There was no one. Not a single living being. Not even a goddamn squirrel. I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm afraid it's about to happen again. I can hear that hum in the distance. As much as I want to get out of here, I can't take the risk. I mean, the only path out of here is through the mountains, and I don't fancy going anywhere too high right now. I'm going to try my luck and hide in the cellar again. If you don't hear from me, it means we weren't lucky enough to be spared twice. There are so many nostalgic things which people collect these days. Toys of all sorts, and one of the most popular items for collectors are dolls. But in this tale, shared with us by author Marcus Demanda, we meet the wife of a doll collector, and she doesn't have quite the love affair with collectibles. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock, Graham Rowett, and Sarah Thomas. So by all means expand your collection, but be careful if you come across the more vintage goods, particularly Winnie the Walking and Talking Doll. We found it in the back of Great Aunt Bernadette's walk-in closet. A little girl made of plastic, with beautiful red hair and a blue and white dress, sleepy eyes that batted open and shut, white shoes with rollers on the bottom. Stood up, it would have been about two feet tall. When we uncovered it, it was still in its original box, which had been resealed with packing tape. Carefully, my husband, Jake, sliced through it with a pocket knife and passed the lid to me. It was a faded light green with red lettering. Winnie. She walks. She talks. She sings. There was no denying it. The thing was creepy as fuck. This is going on eBay, like yesterday. Do a little research first. Don't know what we have here. It's not like it's in pristine condition. Packaging's been opened before, too. Jake and his collections. His packaging. The self-styled man cave he kept in our townhouse featured a whole wall of Star Wars figures in their original boxes. If he could just bring himself to sell even half of that junk, he'd be able to finish off his student loans. Looks pretty pristine to me. For a thing his great aunt had presumably owned when she was a little girl, it was in damn near perfect condition. 
Drake held it, turned it over, peeled back a fold of the dress on its right side. Now you're taking liberties. I swear, the first thing any man wants to do with any doll is get the dress off. You're 32 years old, you pervert. Jake revealed a wind-up key beneath the dress. He thumb-brushed the collar back, revealing a small crack in the neck. This ain't no Barbie, Rhonda. Damaged goods. He set Winnie on its feet. On the hardwood, it stood straight and easy, somehow expectant, facing me. This doll had been used. It had been loved once upon a time. Bernadette had definitely played with it. I felt bad for the eBay suggestion right away. Still fucking creepy. See if she works? <laughs> Point that plastic bitch in another direction. You aim it at me and so help me God I will punt that thing into the wall. His fingers hovered over the key. The doll, Winnie, blinked at me. I suppressed a small gasp. I'm serious. You know I don't bluff, Jake. He put the doll back in the box and it closed its eyes. Jake and Bernadette hadn't been close. I'd never known her except by reputation. In a family deeply steeped in Catholicism, he was one of the backslidden, but his old aunt was a genuine outcast. She'd been a lifelong spinster, working her early years away as a midwife with no children of her own. Later, she'd been a fortune teller, a tarot reader, a conductor of seances. My mother-in-law branded her a Satanist, which Jake assured me was a crock of shit. And yet, there was no shortage of occult oddities sprinkled all over her small, single-floor house, which had doubled as her place of business. I'm not just talking tarot cards and Ouija boards and goat masks, either. There were charms, amulets, beaded necklaces, sacrificial knives. She had jarred fetuses, pigs and bats for the most part, although some were unlabeled and unidentifiable, floating in God only knew what liquid solution. She even had a framed, mummified face that I hoped was fake, complete with a silver engraved nameplate that read, Mother Abigail. Jake parted the beaded curtain on our way back out of the closet, Winnie tucked snugly under an arm. She was a collector, I guess, like me. I moved right for the bedroom door, pointing to a stuffed rat that had been mounted to standing with an iron rod up its ass. <laughs> Only if you compare that to an Empire Strikes Back era Boba Fett action figure. <laughs> yeah, she was a weird old bird, I know. His parents had flatly refused to clean the place out. They hadn't even gone to the funeral, which had been largely attended by elderly strangers, most likely Bernadette's customers. There was no one else, no blood relations other than Jake. Maybe I was predisposed to find the doll scary in a house like this. Not that I believed in magic or ghosts or anything really, but creepy old people kept creepy old things it seemed. I wanted out of here. In the living room, Jake put a hand on my shoulder, stopping me. Rhonda, what do you think we should do with all this stuff? I looked around, turning a full circle. The table and chair that Bernadette had used to commune with her customers and their dead relations was oak cut. 
That thing alone would go for a grand at least. We'd already made two trips to the Goodwill with her clothes, most of which might actually have passed for normal in, uh, the 60s or 70s. We'd get a quote on her VW tomorrow if Jake stuck to the plan and took off work again. You mean the weird shit? Yeah. It's not like we're going to keep any of it or donate it, right? We could cart this stuff to the landfill and be done with it today. It was tempting. Including the doll? After we figure out if she's worth anything, and if she still works. She, he said. Not it. Of everything, only the sale of the house would be split with the rest of Jake's family. And we could take as long with that as necessary. Like I said, Jake, eBay and Craigslist. We can leave all of it right where it is until we've unloaded what we can online. Then dump the rest at the county landfill. That might take a while, but sure. I didn't think it would take that long. The shit was weird, sure, but then so were people. The doctors had told us we were perfectly normal. All kinds of people struggled with getting pregnant, and we'd only been trying for a year. They'd recommended fertility treatments, but we were reluctant to go that route until we'd given it more time. We wanted a baby, not triplets. And we were still hopeful. We'd even picked out our townhouse in part because of the small upstairs room next to the master bedroom that could serve as a nursery. And that room, being unused, was where I told Jake he could put Winnie the walking and talking doll until we decided what to do with it. But first, he brought it into the kitchen. Hard floor. Perfect surface for a test run. I surrendered warily, plopping down at our little table so as to get out of the doll's path. Fine. (laughs) Ten to one the key breaks off in your hand. I really believed that. How many decades had passed since this child's toy had done anything? It was only plastic. Already cracked at the neck. Jake knelt with the doll took her gently from the box, set her on her feet with the little white shoes and rollers. The key creaked and clicked as he twisted it, but it did not break. He only turned it a few rotations. Then he let the doll go. With small, shaky steps, it shuffled forward. Strange that its eyes remained shut until the voice mechanism on the inside warbled to life. And when they did open, they batted and fluttered as though awakening from a long sleep. And true to its advertising, the doll sang. Or it tried to. The voice was scratchy, as though played from a dusty record. Distant, as though from a bad radio signal. It missed certain words as it crowed. And it was old, as though the inside of the doll had gone on aging while the rest of it had not. It swerved just a bit, angling toward the kitchen table. I stood out of the chair so fast I upended it. Okay, fuck all that. I drew my foot back out of the way. But when he stopped, having barely advanced two feet away from Jake, 
and was still two feet away from me. Its internal record, which had apparently hit a skip, shut off with its last step. Its eyes batted shut. <laughs> it works! Holy shit, Rhonda! Hold on there. I wouldn't call the sound quality crystal clear. Gotta find out how old our little girl is. Jake drew his phone from his pocket and began swiping, typing, sounding out his key words as he entered them. Winnie the Walking and Talking Doll. I don't care how old our little girl is, Jake. We're taking it to the dumpster out back or storing it back at Bernadette's with all that other crazy voodoo crap. Maybe she has a ghost trapped in her. You don't want me leaving ghosts in the dumpster for our neighbors to find, do you? Very funny. I started saying more, but then stopped. Teasing or not, it was actually a fair point. Jesus. Jake showed me his phone screen. His search had taken him to a sales site for antique collectibles and toys. On it was another Winnie doll. Almost exactly the same, but with a red dress instead of a blue and white one. The pitch read, Vintage 1950 doll Winnie, 25 inches. Walks, sings, original box with papers, $125. Okay, see that? The seller can't even give her away. Rhonda, she's almost 70 years old. Winnie shuffled forward another half step, the key twitching. Caught on another skip, maybe. I put my hand over my mouth. The words. The timing. Jake knelt behind the doll, twisted the key some more. Winking at me, he turned it around and pointed her the other way. And let it walk again. She'd made it past my husband and was shuffling into the hall as though making for the stairs. For the nursery, I thought, watching it until it stopped again. <laughs> well, Rhonda, this is a YouTube video waiting to be made. Yeah, I said, opening the folding door in our kitchen to the washer-dryer unit. There, on top of the washing machine, was our toolbox. You mean the one where we play a couple who misses every goddamn horror movie cue that's ever been done until they both end up dead? Exactly, that one, and it'll... He kept smiling until I pushed past him, brandishing the heavy steel hammer with the comfortable rubber-encased grip. We're not making that video, Jake. I advanced on the doll without looking back. Rhonda, come on, please, you're not serious. I took a knee, raised the hammer over my head, the key in the doll twitched. Its feet shuffled forward. The I smashed its head in. The face cracked down the middle. One eye went rolling, a tiny piece of plastic skittering over the hard, wooden floor of the hall. I pushed it down to the floor switched to the claw of the hammer before going for the middle of its back. I struck it over and over until it finally quieted. Shards of broken doll were everywhere. I heard my husband come up behind me. Rhonda. His voice was choked. 
What was it in his tone? Sadness? Disappointment? Betrayal? There. Can I take it to the dumpster now? Rhonda. But looking down on the doll, I suddenly understood the feeling Jake was trying to project. Shock. Simple, terrible, unbelieving. Shock. Underneath the doll, from the original crack in its neck, the crack I had not made, oozed a spreading puddle of blood. Not real. I shoved the pieces into a trash bag, two or three at a time. Jake had turned his back on me. He was breathing heavy, one hand clamped over his chest. It's fake, Jake. It's like all that bogus, hocus-pocus shit in that old bat's house. Those goddamn pickled animal fetuses were bogus, and so is this. She just tricked the doll up to get back at whatever family member had the bad luck to clear up after her once she was gone. That's all. I pinched up the dislodged plastic eyeball between two fingers. The pupil in the plastic eyeball shrank, then dilated as though taking me in. I couldn't help it. As for the eyeball, that rattled back over the floor. My hand had flung it without any instruction from my brain. And really, who could blame it? But now I couldn't see the damned thing anywhere. Jake hadn't responded to my scream. I turned on my knees to face him. He was heaving breath, his hand still over his heart. Jake, what? Jake, you're scaring the shit out of me. I went for my phone. Better to call 911 and have it turn out to be nothing than to wish I had called later. But Jake stopped me. A panic attack. I'll be okay, but... God, Rhonda, what if... What if it's her? I stood, hefted the bag. The only parts of the doll not in the bag were the eyeball and the small smear of red whatever the fuck. Her? What are you talking about? Auntie Bernadette, in the doll. What if she, I don't know, displaced her spirit or something? You've got some weird relatives, I'll give you that. But that's crazy, Jake. Don't you go crazy on me now. He looked like a little boy standing there, lost and afraid. I moved in to give him a hug, but he held his hand out, warding me off. He shook his head. His voice still wasn't quite right. Go ahead, hug me later. I'm not mad, just take it to the dumpster like you wanted. Okay, maybe call the local exorcist while I'm out. Tell him to meet me outside. He didn't laugh. He unrolled a few paper towels over the sink. Wetted one. He pointed to the red smear. I'll finish cleaning up. Just get the thing out of here. Down the small chute and into the belly of our parking lot recycling dumpster, the hideous thing went. Seventy years old. Enjoy being reincarnated into something useful, Winnie. Maybe an enema tube or something. The big blue recycling box that serviced three blocks of townhouses in our neighborhood was closed at the top, and large enough for the bag to echo on its way down. The noise of its passage into hopeful oblivion never really stopped. At least not while I was there. It was almost as though 
I could hear the plastic shards shifting around. Maybe some inconsiderate asshole had thrown their food trash in there, and now a rat had gone in to find it. In my head, I could hear it singing in its old woman voice. The rat takes the cheese. The rat takes the cheese. I hold the berry over it. I hurried back to the townhouse, shut myself in, and locked the door behind me. Trash pickups Thursday. That's tomorrow. Good. Godspeed and good riddance. Maybe if Bernadette had inhabited the Winnie doll, her spirit had been sent on its way. If so, even though I struggled to believe in such things, perhaps she was now in hell. It would serve her right. It got away. Jake's hand still clutched a wad of damp paper towels, but there was no blood on them. The puddle on the floor was gone. Um, what? What do you mean it got away? Nothing got away, Jake. I got rid of it, all right? The blood, Rhonda. I tried to mop it up. I swear to God I did. It was... It was like fucking mercury. It, it wouldn't soak in, and, and then it fucking dispersed all over the place like a hundred fucking liquid marbles. It went into the walls, Rhonda, right into the goddamn walls. It was the truth. Jake's a shitty liar, I would have known. And given everything else that had happened, it was surprisingly easy to believe. In my head, the old woman kept singing. The cheese stands alone. The cheese stands alone. I hold the dairy the cheese stands alone. I took my husband's hand. I dragged him to the front door and flung it back open. That's it. We're out of here, Jake. Road trip, motel. We'll figure this out in the morning. We'll get help. Then, out of nowhere, a sharp, searing pain in my head. No, in my eyeball. In my right eyeball. I let go of Jake and dropped to my knees. <laughs> Jake didn't so much as look at me. He walked away from me toward the hall, the stairs. I wanted to follow him, to get up and tackle him, drag him outside, throw him in the car, burn some rubber. But my eye, my eye, felt like it was being pried out of my skull. I held my hand to it, as if to prevent it from coming out of its socket. It seemed to swell. I couldn't close my right eyelid. All I could do was sit there, on my knees, rock back and forth, scream like a baby, like a baby doll. The voice in my head stopped singing. It spoke. It didn't have to be this way. Jake! Jake! Jake, stop! We have to get out of here! You could have invited me to stay. But Jake was thumping up the stairs like a zombie. I can't help it, Rhonda. I have to go. They're calling me. Rhonda, help me. I could hear them, like background chatter in a theater before the house lights go out. Let us out, Jake. We're upstairs. Keep coming. Keep coming. They were ancient, lonely, desperate, 
and dead. But over them all, there was always the voice echoing on the inside of my skull. Winnie's voice. Bernadette's voice. I would have waited for someone else. Someone not family. A visitor, maybe. I would have been patient. I've always been very patient, child. Get out of my fucking head, bitch! The pain receded. My eye went numb and scratchy. Dry. But not now. I'm coming in, Rhonda. I'm coming in to stay. I'll make a baby with him. A real one. And you'll be the baby doll. Our baby will play with you. Behind me. Through the doorway, I heard its approach. It was impossible. It couldn't have made it over the entryway step, much less the front porch. But there, right in front of me, plainly to be seen through my good left eye, shuffled Winnie the walking and talking doll. She was still shattered, her dress gone, the plastic covering her torso gone. She was a pair of arms and legs and a head, held together by old metal rods and discs and screws. Her interior record player was cracked, but still in place. The needle clicked against it, looking for a small vinyl record that was no longer there. Her right eye was brown, and it was too big. It was too real. It was mine. Our baby will play with you, Rhonda. All day. Like hell it will. I regained my feet. With the pain gone, it was easy. Maybe you didn't hear me before, but I don't bluff. And with that, I reared back and punted it with everything I had, heedless of the damage it might do to my own foot. Back through the threshold of the front door, I sent it flying until it landed on the edge of the porch and rolled back down the steps. For the moment, my head was clear. Through the hallway, I charged at a full sprint and up the stairs, only mildly aware of the pain in my right foot that would blossom into agony later when I had time for such things. For now, the only thing that mattered was Jake. I found him at the open doorway of his geeky little man cave. I ran to him. Before I made it to his side, I saw into the room. Saw the wall of pristine action figures in their undamaged packaging. They rattled against the walls. They moved inside their packaging, plastic arms and legs flailing against their transparent plastic prisons. And they were succeeding. One of them, don't ask me which, fucking hate Star Wars, had a foot out the bottom before I even got there. As I pulled up short, horror struck. It dropped to the carpet. It bent at the waist to sit up. Jake? He was looking down, breathing heavy again. His arms hung limp at his sides. Whispers from the action figures. Come inside. Help us. Set us free. And from the one on the floor, who pivoted at the shoulder to point an unbendable white plastic arm at me. Kill her. Jake, 
Look at me. Are you deaf, Jake? I said, look at me. Nothing. I took him by both sides of his face and forced him. I shrieked at him, my lips centimeters from his face. Look at me! Thank God, he finally did. He caught his breath, his gaze fixed on the eye I could not see out of. In that moment, I knew it was Winnie's dead eye, the one I dislodged from her head earlier, only now it had grown to accommodate the space of my eye socket. And I could feel my legs stiffening, the skin hardening. He took my hand. In the man cave, several other figures were dropping free of their prisons. A few were on their feet, teetering, their balance unsure and difficult on the carpeting. Now, Jake! He listened, and we ran. Down the upstairs hall, down the stairs, through the kitchen, and onto the porch, where Winnie was waiting. Her plastic skin rippled at my approach, slowly softening towards real human flesh. This time, I punted her with my left foot. Jake caught me before I could fall. With my husband supporting me under the arms, we lumbered for the car. He helped me to the passenger's side without question. He couldn't know how my limbs were freezing up, how my knees and elbows were becoming more difficult to bend. Getting into the car was one of the hardest things I ever did. But with help, I did it. He drove. I sat back and listened with my good eye shut as he tore through the neighborhood, heading straight for the highway. I have no idea how fast he went, and I'm amazed we never got pulled over. As we drove, as the distance between us and the animated phantom that was Winnie the walking, talking doll increased, the stiffness in my limbs diminished, then departed. The pain in my eye returned. And it was excruciating, even worse than before. But it was good. I was getting my eye back. That was three days ago. I haven't been able to sleep much since then. Neither of us has. We both took off work the next day, but we didn't do anything in terms of selling the old VW or anything else. We've spent most of the time driving, spent each night at a motel, each one a day further away from the townhouse than the last. How far away do we have to be in order to be safe? Can it know where we are now? Can it follow us? Jake's been in touch with his family, even the weird-ass turbo-religious ones. And suddenly, Jake doesn't find them so weird, particularly in their unwillingness to participate in the closing of his Aunt Bernadette's estate. Nor does he find their accusation of Satanism quite so worthy of scorn as he used to. It's difficult to blame him, all things considered. Even so, I hope I get the old Jake back, and soon. As for me, I put it down to a strange old lady that found a dark power through the strength of her belief. I have a hard time believing there's only one such power on this earth that it all comes from one belief structure so many people never even learn about. But I don't pretend to know anything either. I know enough to be afraid for our neighbors, though, so I don't keep Jake from talking to his family. They're looking into it, he says. They're being careful. They've been in touch with the clergy. And that's good. 
because I'm afraid for them, too. Jake's family, I mean. I don't understand them more than half the time, but I don't want anything bad to happen to them either. If their belief in the church helps them to defeat Bernadette's belief in dark magic or Satanism or occultism or whatever it is, then good for them. Good for us all. They're determined, he says. They're sympathetic to our situation and hope it will be safe for us to come home soon. They claim they miss us. Which is strange. They've never missed us before. Am I overthinking this? Probably. But we're halfway across the country now, and it's still hard to feel safe when we're not moving. If that's paranoia, sue me. At least I'm not dead by some silly horror movie trope in a creepy doll story. I don't play by those rules. Even if Jake does. Origami is a popular and relaxing pastime. It's incredible what people can make out of a single sheet of paper. But in this tale, shared with us by author David Stefanoff, we discover that giving form to the things you imagine isn't always for the best. Performing this tale are David Alt and James Cleveland. So sure, take up origami and create a paper swan, but beware because paper cuts might be the least of your worries when you make the final fold. I was sitting in my apartment, facing the window, folding away a piece of paper I had recycled from my mail. I loved origami, and I needed it. I'd fold until I had what I wanted. A boat today, a cat the next, anything that took my fancy. It was either that or be consumed by grief. But it wasn't always like this. Five years ago, my wife Kate had just embarked on yet another work trip. Her reputation as one of the best corporate advisors in the country ensured she traveled regularly. Shortly before her return flight after a week away, she and I spoke briefly. I had made a dumb joke about the plain food, telling her that it should really be called P-L-A-I-N food. She'd laughed and then she told me she would think of me from first class while sipping a G&T, having secured an upgrade earlier that evening. The call had ended with me telling her to return her tray to the upright position, and she laughed again, blew kisses down the phone, told me she loved me, and would see me later. I never saw her alive again. Flight A213 plunged into the ground less than a minute after it took off. Investigations later revealed details of a major electrical malfunction causing a series of events that caused the plane to lose power 
altitude, and ultimately the lives of all 120 passengers and crew on board. The thought of my wife's fear in the final moments of her life as the plane descended follows me everywhere I go. She was only an hour away, one fucking hour. A day doesn't go by where I don't imagine her on that plane as it descended and literally feel her terror coursing through my own veins. To refer to it as a thought is not correct. It is now someone I have become. The sadness is me. What I would give for one more day, one more hour, these thoughts cycle through my mind constantly and once they stop, the cycle starts again. There is now no longer a beginning or an end. I remember the times we shared, the laughter, the joy and even her anger with me sometimes and mine with her. From the first time we met to our first date, the first time we kissed and made love, to the time I asked her to marry me, knowing she was all I wanted and needed. And now I was all alone, with a deep hole and pain in my chest that had not abated even five years on. Instead, it increased, especially towards the anniversary of her death. I knew I was falling deep into depression, but it felt like a roller coaster ride. I, I keep tumbling with nothing to cushion my fall. I, I knew I was sinking, but there was nothing I could do to stop it. Being in my apartment was a constant reminder of how my world had changed that day. Living directly under the flight path with upward of six planes passing overhead per hour ensured I could never forget. Thankfully, a noise curfew had been imposed from 10pm till 6am, meaning the skies are clear within that time, only to resume again at dawn. In the evening, if I looked up from my origami out of the window, I could see crowds going about their business, people moving through the streets like we used to. There is always a lot of activity and chatter, chatter I used to love, but these days I find myself indifferent to small talk. I pressed down firmly on a fold, moving the paper between my fingers, the corners meeting. I pressed down more firmly, being careful to line up the side of the paper with the fold, turning the paper over and feeling the tiny fibers bend from one corner to the other, I pressed quickly but carefully, ensuring uniform distance between the sides. The orange shape in front of me seemed to amplify the sunset streaming in through the window. The evening hue painted the entire room a light peach color, and the humidity caused the paper to grip slightly uneasily between my fingers. As I shifted my focus from the paper to the window, the apartment started to shake slightly. There seemed to be no end to the planes taking off and landing. My eyes returned to the paper, which was now more of burnt orange as the light continued to drain from the day. I pushed back my chair and moved across the room to flick on the light switch. A different but equally warm glow wrapped the room, and for the briefest of moments I basked in the new artificial light before returning to my chair and to my partially complete origami tiger now sitting patiently on the table. You'd hardly know it was a tiger at this point by looking at it. Only I knew. If you've ever seen incomplete origami, you will understand what I'm talking about. It generally doesn't resemble a whole lot right up to the end, 
and sometimes not even until the final fold. The excitement of the reveal, or better still, the few folds just before, always made my hands move more swiftly, while still maintaining the precision and calculation needed to faithfully complete the piece. I had been practicing for over 25 years, and I was pretty good at it. I could make virtually anything, from jungle animals to tropical birds to most fish. Glancing back at the window, I noticed my reflection was now clearly visible, the sky now as dark as a raven's wing. Night was here. Pushing back my chair, I walked to draw the blinds, and a sensation of time slowing almost to a stop fell around me. Walking the short distance across the room, I passed by a photo of Kate and me, both grinning with an intoxicated honesty that revealed our love and adoration for one another. Picking up the picture, my mind returned to the first day I saw her back in the college library. I was in my final year, and I had gone in to catch up on some reading. I remember seeing someone who, instead of reading, had her head down on the desk and was sleeping. I tried my best to ignore her and concentrate on my reading, but found myself looking back her way every few moments to see if she'd woken. At least half an hour had passed before she finally lifted her head, which happened to be right as I was looking her way. Her lips formed a slightly embarrassed smile and I quickly looked away, avoiding eye contact while trying to calm my heartbeat which was well and truly racing. A few moments later I couldn't help but look back. I wouldn't say she was classically beautiful, but her large brown eyes as she glanced over at me held such intelligence and serenity that it was impossible for me not to feel somewhat captive almost as though I could have been literally pushed around by her glance. Her cheekbones were high and there was a strict symmetry to her face. She wore no makeup and her long black hair tumbled down her shoulders in messy disarray, obviously as a result of her nap. It wasn't love at first sight, but I felt a certain excitement, enough to want to see her again and perhaps get to know her. But she didn't give me the time of day, and tracking her down proved difficult. I would come to the library and wait for her to show up, but she never did after that day. I had pretty much given up when, by chance, I bumped into her on my way to the bus one afternoon. I introduced myself, but her response indicated that she didn't remember me from the library nap day. I was gutted, but at the same time here, I was talking to the girl I hadn't stopped thinking about for the past fortnight. I was jerked back to reality by the sound of another plane passing overhead, my eyes watering and my mind snapping back like an elastic band stretched too far. Shifting my attention from the photo back to the counter, I carefully placed the frame back where it had been easily identifiable by the perfect clean rectangles surrounded on all sides by a thick dust blanket. I must clean that, I thought to myself, but on further consideration I discarded the idea. What was the point? It would just get dusty again. Turning back to the table, my tiger sat incomplete and lifeless. The paper I was folding was a flyer picked out of the pile of mail that I had brought in the day prior. 
I hadn't bothered to look at what it was. I couldn't have been less interested, and was sure that there was very little chance that whatever was being advertised was of any use to me. All I saw was bright orange writing on a pale blue background. Inspecting the hind leg of my latest creation, I noticed that something was on sale for £99, but given the now very different form the paper had taken, it could have been anything. With precision, I continued creasing, inverting, and folding. Each fold was a continuous symphony, like a conductor in front of an orchestra where each whip of the baton commanded a new note, a new direction. The pressure through my fingers breathed life into the paper. What was a useless flyer destined for recycling only a few moments ago now sat proudly on the table. Inspecting the finished object as I always did, I took note of the true beauty in the details. It's not as though a replica of the animal is created. The magic is in the fall of the legs, the roll of the ears, and the flow of the tail. The details that tells your mind you must be looking at the best version of the actual thing you can make. And my tiger looked great, random lettering down its back and all. Something about a new mobile phone plan. I set it next to the large pile of mail. The rest of the night was simply routine, as it often was. I had leftovers for dinner and went to bed early, falling asleep with a book in my hand. The rush of the engines of the first flight of the day overhead yanked me awake the next morning. I hadn't used an alarm in years. The shaking of my apartment was a very reliable indicator that it was just after 6am. This suited me just fine as it gave me plenty of time to get ready for work. After taking a shower and getting dressed, I fixed my routine breakfast of porridge with brown sugar and made my way to the table, juggling the bowls to give my fingers some respite from the intense heat. As I sat down, my heart suddenly twisted and jumped. My breath came in sharp and shallow pants, and a feeling of unease settled over me. The same feeling you get when you think you're being watched. The hair on the back of my neck started to stand and I felt a chill in the air. I scanned the room quickly, feeling a bit silly at my reaction and trying to find logic for my sudden change in feeling. There was nothing remarkable about this morning, right? I scoffed to myself, grinning nervously, and turned back to eat my breakfast, which was now cooling in front of me. As my eyes rose past my bowl and settled on my paper tiger, I came to appreciate the source of my unease, and what I saw seemed to chill my blood to match that of the cool air. I was certain I had left my tiger next to the pile of mail, but there it was, looking directly at me from on top of the pile. The tiger and I both sat still, each as inanimate as the other. Staring, I tried to convince myself that I simply forgot where I left it, but my racing heart disagreed. The tiger just sat there, holding its pose, and I wondered if it knew it was holding me prisoner in this exchange. Eventually, with a trembling hand, I reached out and picked up the tiger by its tail and inspected the folds. They were all unchanged from what I'd made the night before. I again set the tiger down on the table and noticed that atop the pile of mail, which I was very sure was just bills and catalogues, sat a sealed 
plain white envelope. It had no address, stamp, or markings. Huh? I hadn't noticed it when I glanced through the mail the day before, but then that could easily happen. I only tended to be interested in looking for colorful paper for my origami. I started to relax, knowing that it was an easy thing to miss, but was quickly thrown back into panic as I realized that someone must have hand-delivered this envelope to my apartment. I set the envelope back down on the pile of mail and turned my attention back to my breakfast, but my mind was a mess. Where did it come from? Why? Should I open it? What if it was a dangerous prank? Shit. I was now running late. I gulped down my breakfast, threw the bowl in the sink, and dashed out the door. My day at work was uneventful, standard, but I managed to get more done than I normally would. I also managed to substantially refrain from thinking about my wife, even though it was just three days to her anniversary. I had already booked flights to visit her parents so we could visit Kate's grave together, as we have done each anniversary since the crash. With each passing year, though, I only got worse instead of getting better, my feeling of loss and isolation continuing to consume my life. Kate's parents weren't aware of my daily struggle to get by. They didn't need to be, they had enough to deal with without adding me to the list. Just as folded paper will forever hold evidence of the crease no matter how hard you try to flatten it out, the impact left on us all by the plane crash will never properly heal. As I entered my apartment, almost immediately the same feeling of unease from the morning settled over me. The only difference was this time I had an idea why. I dropped my bag and glanced across the small room to the table. What the hell? Right there, on the table, was my tiger, again sitting atop the stack of mail, which was topped by the sealed white envelope. I didn't know what was more disconcerting, the thought that someone may have been in my apartment playing a prank, or that my tiger had somehow moved by itself. I crossed the floor and grabbed the envelope from beneath the tiger, causing it to topple and come to rest on its side. Before I could rethink my actions, I tore open the envelope and removed its contents. In my hands was a small stack of the most exquisitely decorated pieces of paper I had ever laid eyes on. Each piece was seemingly more beautiful than the last, different designs so intricate in their detail I could have sworn the patterns were moving under my thumbs. As I flipped the stack over, I was again dazzled by the luminescence between my fingers, and any thoughts of their origin flew from my mind. There was something about this paper that pushed my regular thoughts away and opened a presence to which I was wholly unfamiliar. All I could think of was what to fold. In an almost fugue-like state, I took one of the pieces and went to work. With each fold and alignment of the paper, its beauty seemed to metamorphose further, as though the form of the final object was somehow predetermined. As I worked, I felt my heart lighten, my mind clear, and my hands warm. I wasn't aware of how much time had passed, but by the time I was done, sitting in front of me was the most beautiful parrot I had ever made. I couldn't help but stare at it, 
the details in the crease, in the beak, angle of the tail and shape of the wings were the finest I had ever done. Pushing back my chair, I stood and shook my head clear. Only the passing of a plane overhead reminded me of where I was. Such had been my absorption in my folding. Heading over to the photo of Kate and me, I carefully set the parrot beside it. See you in three days. I started to walk away, but then paused and looked back at the counter. I couldn't help but notice that it looked as though there was a little dust-free space where the parrot now stood, as though it had been there before. I awoke earlier than usual the next morning. The regular sound of jet engines overhead was replaced by loud squawking outside my window. I squinted at the 5.45 glowing from my phone, puzzled that it was before curfew. But the noise was deafening like nothing I had ever heard before. I rolled towards the bedroom window and drew back the curtain. My heart immediately took off like a race car. The sun was just rising, but it was enough to illuminate the center of the yard where dozens and dozens of native parrots occupied every spare inch of branch on the sole eucalyptus outside, all squawking chaotically. But before I could completely comprehend what was going on, as if in silent communication they all took flight, squawking madly as they did. The sky filled with a color and pattern that seemed oddly familiar, but also seemed to constantly shift as they flapped and circled overhead before finally disappearing out of sight. It took a while before silence returned. All the while I continued to stare out at the now empty yard. My mind began racing and my body felt as though it had been charged with an electric current. Before long, though, I was interrupted by the sound of my apartment shaking from the first flight out of morning curfew overhead. Dragging myself out of bed, I went to prepare for work with the intention of going about the day as best I could. Throughout the day, I tried dozens of theories about the arrival of the papers, the origami parrot, and the arrival of the flock of birds earlier that morning, but I came up with nothing. Nothing that didn't make me sound like I'd lost my mind, that is. By the time I got home, I was exhausted. Seeing the picture of Kate and me as I walked in only seemed to intensify my mood. It was only two days to her anniversary. The pain and pressure in my chest built, and I knew the next couple of days were going to be torture. I sat at the table and took the top piece of paper off the stack from the envelope and started to fold, anything to take my mind off the pain. A series of swift but careful folds later, I was holding a Labrador Retriever. The detail was, as usual, spot on. The width of the head, the arch of the back, and the thickness of the tail, all of it was beautiful. I placed the Labrador next to the parrot as I lingered by the photo. My ability to hold things together was wearing thin. I just knew it. I must have fallen asleep in my chair since I was awakened to the sound of howling off in the distance. The howling increased in intensity, all the while maintaining its distance from my apartment. Just as the distant howling chorus reached a crescendo, the sound suddenly stopped, 
and was quickly replaced by excited barking and scratching from right outside my front door. What the heck? I stood up from my chair and crossed the room. With my legs and hands shaking, I took a deep breath, turned the handle and pulled open the door. Looking down at a brown Labrador, my heart seemed to slow and speed up at the same time, and a feeling of elevated awareness shot through me. I realized that this was exactly what I was expecting. The dog sat on the other side of the screen door, wagging its tail, its body shaking with excitement. Without thinking, I opened the screen. It rushed by me and went straight to the counter, right in front of the photo of Kate and me. It then circled a few times before settling down, carefully placing its jaw on its front paws, which were gently crossed in front of him. Hey! I walked over to the dog and bent down to pat its head. Sensing friendship, it stretched out further, an invitation to scratch and pat some more. As my hand passed over the fur on the back of its neck, I noticed that it had a collar. On the collar was a name and number. Leroy? Hearing his name, Leroy rolled and looked up at me. What you doing, boy, huh? I need to get you back to your owner, Leroy. He ignored me and just rolled back to his flat position on the floor, hoping for more pats and less talking. Leroy's owner was very grateful I had called. Apparently, he had taken off a few days ago, being frightened during a storm. His owner asked if I had any idea why the dog showed up at my place, and although I had some idea, I said I didn't. Leroy's owner naturally accepted my answer, thanked me, and said he'd make his way around to pick up his dog. He was at my place half an hour later. He had brought a bottle of wine as a thank you, which I put on the table before grabbing Leroy to return to his owner. So, I see you do origami. I wasn't surprised at the question. I had seen the way he had looked past me into my apartment, noting the origami displayed on the counter. Yes, I do. I've done so for years now. This exchange was the closest thing to social interaction I'd had in a long time. I passed the leash I had made earlier out of a frayed old brown belt for Leroy to his owner. He nodded as though he knew more than he was letting on. We all must create what we seek. In that moment, his words seemed to speak directly to my heart. The man said goodbye and they left, Leroy barking happily as they turned the corner at the end of the street. I slammed the door and rushed back to the table, roughly grabbing the stack of paper. There were so many pieces, about uh, 25 of them. My head was spinning and my heart was racing, but if I was right, I was in possession of the very thing I needed to create the present and future I sought. I felt as light as a feather and everything appeared to briefly shift in and out of focus rapidly. I had to test my theory just one more time, even though my mind was already swimming along a long list of things I wanted. <laughs> Cars, houses, boats, money. Glancing toward the photo of Kate and me, everything deflated in an instant, and sadness again washed over me. I wondered how I could ever be happy again. I simply couldn't believe I was equipped to outrun my sadness. What was the point of having all the material things anyone ever wanted when love and happiness were out of reach? 
They were unfoldable. My chest constricted, my loneliness plumbing new depths despite the limitless possibilities stacked in front of me. Blindly, I tried to focus through the pain and set out to test the theory that whatever I created with the enchanted paper from the mystery envelope somehow became a reality. As I held a hastily but carefully folded eucalyptus tree, I quickly inspected the intertwined non-uniform branches, the uneven and seemingly random coloring, and the gentle camber of the leaves. It was absolutely perfect. Placing the origami next to the others, I raced to my bedroom window and looked out into the yard. With not so much surprise as a sense of assurance, I glanced to the modest tree that had only yesterday hosted dozens of parrots and noted it was now twice as tall and three times as full. Timber stretched in all directions, the long, thin branches like hands with extra fingers, the bone-like knotted bark now gently scratching on the window. As my hastened breath rose in time with my increasing pulse, small droplets of condensation partially obscured the view from the glass, but not the image of the possibilities now firmly glowing in my mind. With an almost childlike excitement, the likes of which I had not felt in years, I knew with certainty that my papers were enchanted, and with that carried the heavy burden of responsibility of what to fold. I still didn't know from where they came, but I didn't give a damn. All I knew was that I had the ability to create the life I wanted. For the first time since the crash, I now had a way forward. For the briefest of moments, the excitement overtook the thought that tomorrow was Kate's anniversary. My plane ticket sat on the table next to the pile of mail. I had booked an early flight, the first out of the curfew. I pondered my tickets, noting the skies overhead were currently quiet as it was close to midnight. I knew I should get some sleep, but first I had some folding to do. My mind continued to race with possibilities, swirling in and out of various possessions and options. But then, as though repelled by a magnet, my happiness vanished again, only to be replaced by melancholy as heavy as a rock. I remembered Kate's warm hands and the way she would squeeze mine in silent reassurance. What wouldn't I give for just one more day with her, to tell her I loved her one more time? When my hands started folding, I knew I wasn't in control of what they were doing. Each crease was very precise, corner to corner, side to side. Each score was perfect. As the object started to take form, even I could not determine what was being created. I felt the temperature of the paper rise from the heat radiating from my fingers. It was as though I was in a trance. The paper changed shape, yet kept its true form from being revealed until the final fold. My sweaty hands came to an abrupt stop and retreated hastily from the object in front of me. My heart slowed its pace and my eyes refocused, staring at a perfectly folded passenger jet. The detail was flawless, the wingtips, tail fin, and nose cone all perfect. I stared at the plane for a long time. Eventually, with a clearing mind, I pushed back my chair. I carefully picked up the plane and crossed the floor to the photo of Kate and me, the origami parrot, dog, and eucalyptus. 
I stood there for a long time, simply staring at Kate's beautiful face and waited for the tears in my eyes to dry. See you tomorrow, baby. And right before I set the plane on the counter, I tore it in half. In our final tale, we join two girls whose friendship is as strong as they come. It's that kind of special bond which comes along very rarely, where two people know their relationship will last for the rest of their lives. However, as we learn in this tale shared with us by author J.J. Cheeseman, there's no guaranteeing how long those lives will last. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Addison Peacock, Nicole Doolin, Mike Delgadio, Jesse Cornett, Erica Sanderson, and Dan Zapula. So if you go down to the woods today, then you'd better go with someone you trust. Otherwise, you might find yourself missing Brindolin. To say that Brindolin Embry was special to me would be an understatement, and would feel like a disservice to her memory. Brindolin's mother was friends with mine before we were born, and as far as I can recall, the Embrys had always lived next door. If you were somehow able to collect the memories of my life and then draw them out on a timeline, you would see that Brindy was a constant in my life at the beginning. It would start with the vague memories of our mothers visiting one another for playdates when we were just barely toddlers. Of course, there's the countless times she and I were scolded for talking too loudly in Miss McConnell's class. Then there would be that final time out in those woods. That awful summer before Brindy was wiped away from that timeline completely. There's no real comfort for what happened. No respite from the overwhelming dread that has taken hold of my heart since that time in the funeral parlor. The years of therapy have done nothing to convince me that it didn't happen exactly the way I remember. Our seventh grade year was over, and for me, it ended on a low note. I started to get pretty sick during those last few days at school. What began as a cold caused my tonsils to be infected and they had to be removed. Tonsillectomies, while relatively routine procedures, are no joke. I was stuck inside for the first two weeks of summer vacation. My throat was constantly sore and I was absolutely miserable. My only reprieve was Brindolin. She visited every single day while I was sick. The first time she came over, I was sleeping, and my mother sent her away, insisting I needed my rest. 
I was so mad when I found out that Brindy came and she didn't wake me. Don't get fussy with me, Jesse. Or I'll send her away tomorrow, too. I just rolled my eyes. She might not be here tomorrow. It was a silly thing for me to say. We both knew she would be. The next day, Brindy brought some fudge that her mom made to make me feel better. My throat was still feeling pretty rough, so Brindy ate most of the fudge. I sat propped up in my bed, and she sat across from me. A chessboard was between us, and we talked about what we would do that summer while we played. Brindy didn't like playing, and often she forgot what pieces could move where, but she indulged me. Chess was my newfound love, and since Red Ridge Middle School didn't have a chess club, the only opponents I ever played against were my dad and Brindy. You can't do that. What? Yes, I can. The little guys move forward. Your horse is in the way, so I'm going to take him out. I've said this before. The pawns move forward, but they can only take a piece that is on a diagonal space. My knight is in front of your pawn, so you can't take it. Well, that's stupid. She picked up the pawn to move it back. Suddenly, she whipped her head around to look out my window. The pawn fell from her hand and landed on its side on the board. I turned to follow her gaze. The curtains were pulled back and the window was open. It was a beautiful May afternoon, and a light breeze was causing the curtains to flitter about in the air. We lived on the edge of town, out where the sparse houses and bits of sidewalk quickly gave way to woods and fields of corn. The single window in my room opened up into the backyard. Beyond the yard was about a half mile of open field, and beyond that was a dense wood that stretched on seemingly forever. I turned back to Brindy, who was still staring out the window. Are you okay? She turned to me and nodded. Yeah. She looked out the window once more, then back to me. I just think it'd be fun to go exploring in those woods. I snorted, and the act pained my throat more than I expected. I coughed and sputtered, reaching for the glass of water on my nightstand. Are you okay? I took two gulps of water. The cold liquid felt like heaven on my throat. <clears throat> I'm fine. <clears throat> but you're crazy if you think that our parents are going to let us do that. You think so? We're 12 now. We're practically adults. I don't think they'll care. I couldn't tell if she was being sarcastic about the adults thing, but I ignored it. You're 12. I'm still 11 until July. And my mom is super strict about stuff like that. When you get better, I'll ask her. She never says no to me. It was true. Brindy had a track record for convincing my mom to let us do things she thought we were too young for. Well, you can try. But I don't think she'll give. As it turns out, I was wrong. I don't think I would have been, though, if it wasn't for my father. On the following Friday, I was finally feeling like myself again. I slept well the night before, 
and I felt full of energy instead of the groggy, tired mess that I was after my surgery. My throat was still a bit scratchy, but that didn't bother me much. I was up that morning before mom had breakfast finished. Hey Jess, how are you feeling? A lot better. Would it be okay if Brindy stayed over tonight? You mean she doesn't already live here? Mom. <laughs> I groaned and sat with dad at the table. She laughed. As long as you're feeling okay, I don't see why not. I agree. But don't get too wild tonight. Your father has to go into work tomorrow. My room was directly next to my parents, and our walls were paper thin. Anything above a dull roar could be easily heard in the next room. We'll keep it down. The energy in the room seemed positive, so I decided to ask about the woods without Brindlin there for backup. I regretted that decision almost immediately. Absolutely not. It's not like we're going to go very far. And we'll be careful, I promise. I don't have a problem with it. Dad reached for the bacon, and Mom shot daggers at him from across the table. Dad noticed, but not before shoving two strips of bacon in his mouth. He shrugged as he chewed, then swallowed. Oh, those woods don't go on for very long, and they come out just on the other side of Tomlinson's field. If they get lost or something, they'll just end up in corn. You remember Gary Tomlinson, right, Jesse? Yep. He always wears that stupid hat. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit goofy. But he's an honest, hardworking man with a level head. I trust him. The girls will be fine, Tiff. Just give them a time to check back in. Mom's face was hard, but she wasn't shooting daggers at him anymore. Dad put another piece of bacon in his mouth and looked at the clock. Oh shit, I'm late for work. He stood up and kissed us both goodbye before heading out the door. As soon as the front door closed behind him, I turned back to my mother. Mom, please. She sighed heavily, then asked. Well, what did her parents say? I don't know yet. Mom drummed her fingers on the kitchen table and seemed to go over something in her head before replying. Well, I guess it is all right with me. But two things. First, I'm going to call her mother and talk to her. I'm going to make sure you two aren't pulling anything by not running this by her. I rolled my eyes. Mom, you're way stricter than her mom is. Second, I want you two back in an hour after you leave the yard. I'll be keeping track. And if you're gone even one second longer than that, I'll send Brindlin straight home. You understand? Yes. Thanks, Mom. I got up from the table and hugged her tight. How come I only ever get hugs when I let you do something? She hugged me back. After breakfast, I grabbed my favorite book and began reading outside on the porch. The morning started out with a calm, warm breeze and a blue sky that wore only a few white, passive clouds. By mid-afternoon, however, the sky became overcast and the warm breeze put on a bitter coat. 
I went inside to grab a sweatshirt and throw it on. When I came back out, I heard the familiar creak of a storm door swinging open. I looked next door and saw Brindy stepping out of her house with her mother just behind her. Mrs. Embry stayed on the front stoop, while Brindy walked in my direction on the side of the short stretch of country road. Mrs. Embry raised a hand and waved when she saw me, and I waved enthusiastically back. Jesse! <gasps> I jumped and turned around. My mother stood behind our own storm door, looking out at me. You scared me! Sorry. It looks like rain today. I don't want you going out in those woods getting all wet and muddy. Brindy had made the short walk over by then. She climbed up the porch steps and replied for me. What if we wait a bit and see if it's going to rain? If it doesn't, we'll go. We'll come right back if it starts, I promise. Yeah, we will. Mom put her hand on her hips and blew her hair out of her face. Well, all right. But come inside while you wait and get something to eat, Jessie. There's meat and cheese for sandwiches in the fridge. Brindlin, are you hungry? I could eat. But you better have turkey. Ham sucks. She was never shy about speaking her mind around Mom. We ate in the kitchen, listening for the first sign of rain while we talked quietly about what we'd do that night after my parents were asleep. Whatever we do, it can't be loud. My dad has to work in the morning. That's okay, we'll figure something out. God, ham sucks. <laughs> I think it's alright. Brindy opened her mouth to speak, probably to voice her disagreement, but she stopped and turned to look out the kitchen window. She stared out into the woods beyond the house, just like she did days before in my room. I tried to see what it was she was staring at, but I saw nothing except trees. Brindy, what's going on? What do you see out there? She turned and looked at me intensely. You don't hear that? The window was screened in, but it was open. Holding my breath, I listened and heard nothing. Not even the sound of the wind. Hear what? Brindy didn't look surprised. My mom said she couldn't hear anything either. But every now and then, I hear something that comes from those woods. What does it sound like? I don't know how to describe it. I can't hear it very well. It sounds far away. I shrugged. Dad said that Mr. Tomlinson's farm is on the other side of the woods. Maybe you're hearing his tractor or something. Maybe. We ate quietly for a few minutes. I was trying desperately to hear the noise Brindy was talking about, but I didn't have any luck. I could tell Brindy was listening too. After a while, my mom walked into the kitchen and told us the news we were waiting for. If you girls are going, you better do it now. The sky is gray, but it hasn't turned nasty yet. One whiff of rain, though, and you girls run straight back to the house, you hear me? 
If your mother catches wind that I was the cause of you catching a cold, neither of us will ever live it down. Hey, what about me? Mom walked over and brushed a hand through my hair. Oh, and I guess I should tell my daughter to be careful too, huh? <laughs> Very funny, Mom. I stood up and kissed her on the cheek. I knew she wouldn't let me leave without it. And Brindy and I made a mad dash for the door. I mean it, girls. Any sign of rain and I want your butts back here. And you make sure back in an hour at the absolute latest. Okay. okay. I checked my watch as we stepped off the porch steps. It was 3.30, but the fast-moving clouds above our heads told me that we probably wouldn't have all the way until 4.30 before we had to turn around. We should hurry, if we want to be able to see anything in there at all. Racia. Yeah. Before I processed her words, she made a mad dash for the open field behind the house. Cheater! The trek across the field was a lot longer than it looked. By the time we reached the tree line, my lungs and legs were on fire. I ran as hard as I could, but it was all I could do just to keep up with Brindy. She reached the woods at least a full 30 seconds before I did. She stopped and waited for me to join her, and when I did, I had to stoop over a bit and catch my breath. Brindy didn't seem winded at all. Playing chess doesn't help much, huh? Shut up. I caught my breath and stood straight again. I just had surgery. Give me a break. Excuses. Do you hear that sound now? Brindy tilted her head, listening for a moment. Nope. Well... What are you waiting for? I walked ahead, entering the woods first. Brindy followed suit, and we walked side by side and through the trees. We were swallowed and surrounded on all sides by elms and sycamores, with the occasional white oak and their ivory-colored bark standing in stark contrast among the dark colors of the rest of the trees. Sticks and twigs snapped underfoot as we made our way deeper. Wind whistled between the low-hanging branches, and the pallid forms of the white oaks that I could see out of the corners of my eyes made me think of ghosts watching us from afar. I shivered at the thought, but Brindy didn't seem to notice. She was still listening for that sound. We walked for some time longer in silence, until I finally spoke. I was hoping we'd find a fallen tree or a snake skin or something by now. This is pretty boring, don't you think? Brindy put a finger to her lips. Shh. At this point, I was a little uncomfortable and a bit annoyed. To be perfectly honest, Brindy's mystery sound was creeping me out. I was starting to think that Maybe she was imagining it, but I didn't want to say that. So we stood without saying a word for what felt like a long time. All that could be heard was the wind. Then 
there was a sudden, distant sound of thunder somewhere on the horizon. Our expedition was going to have to be cut short. Then, as sudden as the thunder, came another sound. It was a deep, somber din that echoed and reverberated between the willows and oaks, sending chills up and down my spine. Its call resonated all around us, until at last it stopped. But only briefly. A few seconds went by, and it started again. If I didn't know any better, I would have said that it sounded like the foghorns that ships on the open ocean use to warn other vessels of their approach when the weather turned bad and visibility was poor. Except, I did know better. We were in the middle of the woods. We have to go. We can't. I hear it now. We're close. Yeah, I know. I hear it too. That horn isn't good. We have to go. I grabbed her arm, and she yanked it away. Horn? Are you crazy? It's not a horn, it's... She stopped talking as soon as the sound stopped. Then... When it started up again, Brindy said something I couldn't hear. The horn seemed to be growing louder, and a bit shorter each time. It was more like some great warning alarm now. Brindy took off without another word, dodging and weaving through the thick wood with ease. I tried to call after her, but my voice cracked and my throat burned. I thought I'd fully recovered by then but it seemed that the chill in the air was causing the pain to flare up again. Running probably didn't help either, but that wasn't my biggest concern at that moment. Brindy ran up and over a small hill and disappeared behind it. I followed as quickly as I could. I ran halfway up the hill before my foot slipped. My hand shot out and caught a low-hanging branch from a nearby tree. The branch creaked, and for one terrible moment I thought it was going to snap sending me tumbling backwards down the hillside. The branch held, and I used its support to keep me balanced while I regained my footing. Pain shot from my ankle, and I cursed. I had had sprained ankles before, and it was tame in comparison, but it still hurt like hell. Tears welled in my eyes, and the horrible foghorn noise was making my head pound. I climbed as quickly as my ankle would allow the rest of the way up, using the surrounding trees for support. When I reached the top of the hill, the sound of the horn ceased. I found myself at the edge of a small valley, the sides of which swept down into a clearing that formed into a crescent shape. In the center was Brindy, but to my dismay, I saw she was not alone. A figure stood towering over her. I couldn't tell if it was male or female. It wore long and tattered white robes that concealed its entire body. Its face and head was hidden beneath a large mask of something that resembled a great ebony bird. It had a large and narrow beak that jutted out from the face. A patchwork of jet black feathers covered the mask but they were missing in odd places, revealing leathery tan fabric underneath. 
The eyes were the largest and strangest feature on the mask. Big and awful yellow, they held vertical slits of pupils instead of circular discs. Then something terrible happened. Something that caused me to use language that I'd heard my dad use a thousand times before, but would never dare say in his presence. The eyes. Those horrible eyes that were like a cat's, and not at all like the eyes of a bird. Blinked. It wasn't a mask. It wasn't a mask at all. Holy shit. I was shivering, and I realized I could see my breath. It was unnaturally cold all of a sudden. My shivers were involuntary spasms of movement. When I tried to call out to Brindolin to tell her to run away, I only clenched my fists tighter. Fear had me rooted to the ground. The bird-like thing cocked its head and something moved from within its robes as the white fabric parted. A black tendril appeared from beneath and moved to caress Brindolin's face. The wispy and long black appendage glided about her caramel-colored skin, which was growing paler by the second. I realized Brindolin's breath was also visible, and even from where I stood, I could see her shaking. More tendrils appeared to join the first, and they moved all around her body until she could barely be seen within an ocean of pitch. Fear had prevented me from moving, the fear of that strange and vile creature. But a new fear had begun to take hold of me, one that proved itself stronger than the one that came before it. Brindolin was my best friend. She had never been far from me my entire life. She might as well have been my sister, and if I didn't do something right then and there, I might lose her forever. I took one miscalculated step forward, and my ankle rolled. As I fell, I remember thinking that I would die. I was going to break my neck at the bottom of the valley and the monster would drag me away into some dark hollow, and I'd never be seen again. I fell on my side first, and rolled the rest of the way down. When I hit the bottom, I was flat on my stomach. The air was knocked out of my lungs, and I coughed and sputtered. My vision was blurry, but with everything I had, I raised my head. The creature hadn't moved. It still had its hold on Brindy, unperturbed by my tumble down the valley. It was here that I finally found my voice. Hey! Let go of her! The creature's head cocked in my direction. Its enormous eyes each winked, first one and then the other. It seemed to be considering me. I yelled again. Leave her alone! Get away! The effort hurt. My throat felt like it was going to rupture, but I didn't care. The creature finally let go, 
withdrawing the long, inky black fingers into its robes. Brindolin crumpled to the ground on her back and didn't move. I couldn't tell if she was breathing or not. I prayed that she was. The creature made its way back to where I was, gliding soundlessly toward me in a movement that was as graceful as it was terrifying. There was a loud crack of thunder, and it began to rain. A silly thought occurred to me then. Steady drops of water fell on top of my head, and as the creature drew near, all I could think of was how mad Mom was going to be that we didn't come straight home when it started to pour. Just as the monster was nearly on top of me, that strange, somber horn sounded again. The creature stopped and raised its great beak to the sky. It stood still for just a moment, as if deciding what to do next. Then it turned its body and moved in the opposite direction. It glided past Brindolin as the horn died out. It stopped briefly to turn its head down at her, but once the horn began again, it glided away into the woods and out of sight. When the creature disappeared, so too did the unnatural cold. The foghorn died out and didn't sound off again. As quickly as I could, I crawled over to Brindolin, calling her name. Brindy. Brindy. She didn't stir. When I got to her, I saw she was breathing. Her chest was rising and falling slowly, but her breaths were shallow. I tried to pick her up at first, but I could barely stand even without her added weight. The pain in my ankle was too great. I doubted that I could make it back very easily by myself, let alone dragging Brindy with me. Brindy, Brindy, you have to wake up. I shook her, but she still wouldn't wake. Brindy, come on. Please. You have to get up. Please. No matter how I try, Brindolin wouldn't budge. Her eyes never even opened. My heart sank, and I started to cry. There was a rustling sound, and I heard voices coming from somewhere. I looked around, trying to wipe the tears from my eyes, fearing that the creature had returned. Two silhouettes appeared in my tear-blurred vision. Jesus Christ, Jesse. What the good Lord's name happened out here? There was no mistaking that wide-brimmed cowboy hat. It was Mr. Tomlinson and his wife. I broke into a sobbing explanation that wasn't coherent at all. All right now, easy. We'll get you home. He walked over and knelt down, putting a hand on Brindolin's neck and checking her pulse. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, you girls are freezing. Donna, uh, go bring the truck round to the edge of the field. 
Hurry now, before the ground gets too muddy and we have to dig it out. His wife nodded and ran out in the direction they came from. Gary Tomlinson waited with me, trying to get Brindy to open her eyes. He explained that he and his wife heard me shouting from where they were working in the field, and they came to investigate. We finally got Brindy to stir, but it was only for a moment. Hey, hey, girl. We were worried about you. Just then, Mrs. Tomlinson came back. Truck's ready. Let's get these girls home. I told Jacob to call their folks and let them know what's going on. Brindy looked at me, and what she said before she closed her eyes again confused me then, and it confuses me now. They won't stop singing. What? Before I got an answer, I was scooped up by Mrs. Tomlinson, and she cradled me in her arms as she began to carry me out of the woods. Behind her, I saw Mr. Tomlinson pick up Brindy and follow after. When we made it to the truck, I saw him exchange a grim look with his wife. You drive, Donna. We'll ride in the bed. It's just down the road. Drop us off first, you hear? She nodded and helped me into the cab of the truck. she shut the passenger door, I saw her exchange words with her husband, and she put a hand to her mouth. Their grim expressions told a story, a truth that I was not prepared for. That no one, no matter how calloused by life's cruelty, can ever be prepared for. When Mrs. Tomlinson got into the driver's side of the cab and turned the key in its ignition, I cried. When I turned and saw Mr. Tomlinson sitting down in the truck bed, with Brindy's head cradled in his hands, his cell phone between his shoulder and his ear, knowing the call he was making, I cried harder. We stopped in Brindy's driveway, and Mr. Tomlinson stepped down carefully off of the truck bed, cradling Brindlin in his arms. Her parents were waiting on the porch, and when they saw their baby being carried that way, too still, unnaturally still, they bolted to the man who held their child in his arms. Their howls of anguish were easily heard inside the cab of the truck. They took her from him, and all he could do was remove his hat and say how sorry he was. There were sirens in the distance, an ambulance that would be too late to do what they were called for. Mrs. Tomlinson pulled the truck out of the Embry's driveway and drove down the road. Seconds later, we were at my own house, where my mother was waiting. She was in the yard, 
watching the tragic scene unfold at the house next door. There was a stone look on her face, one that I understood even back then was the look of someone who felt guilty. Guilty because she was relieved her child was alive. When the truck rolled to a stop, she came over and opened the passenger door. She looked into my eyes that were still streaming with tears and began to cry too. That day, the two houses at the edge of town of Red Ridge mourned, and the sky with its falling rain seemed to join them. I blamed myself for Brindlin's death. I still do. If I'd done something sooner, if I wasn't pissing my pants in fear, she might still be here today. But I was a coward and I let my best friend die in those woods. I didn't know how to explain it to my parents or to hers what happened out there. I told them we were attacked by a man that tried to run off with Brindlin. I said he must have gotten scared of being caught and ran off when I yelled at him. That didn't explain the severe hypothermia that was determined to be Brindlin's cause of death. But thankfully, I wasn't questioned much further than that. Brindlin Embry passed away on May 11th, 2009. Her funeral and visitation was held exactly ten days afterward. And though the day out in those woods is one I will never forget, it is her funeral that will always haunt me. It was an open casket viewing, and my family and I were the first to arrive at the funeral home. I held hands with my mother and father as we made our way inside. The funeral director held the door open for us, and offered his condolences as we entered. Mr. Embry sat in a high-backed chair that was decorated in flowers, just inside the lobby of the parlor. His eyes were red from crying. They seem to always be that way now. He stood quickly to shake my father's hand, who immediately batted it away and embraced him tightly. They held each other for a long time before they separated. Fresh tears formed in both of their eyes when they did. My mother was next and she held him just as long as my father did. Oh, Dave, I'm so sorry. Mr. Embry could say nothing back. He only cried. My own eyes began to sting with tears. It's hard to watch adults in pain as a child. Even though you can understand it, and even be in that exact state of mourning as they are. There's still something raw there that is difficult to put into words. I turned away from them and moved further into the funeral home. I walked through an archway that opened into the main room of the parlor. Pews lined either side of the room, and a long red rug ran down the middle 
leading up to the open casket. From where I stood, I couldn't see inside the coffin, which sat on an elevated platform. I was thankful for that. I'd been trying to talk myself into being able to look at Brindy one final time before they closed the lid and buried her for good. Still, I was scared. Even though I'd seen worse out there in those woods between the Tomlinson's house and mine, this was different. The encounter with the bird-like horror felt like a distant nightmare now. I didn't see it since that rainy day and never again after, though I feared I might. Still, it didn't compare to this. This was raw death. This was real. At the very front of the room, sitting on the left side in the pew nearest the casket, was Brindelin's mother. Her curly black hair was shrouded in a black veil that matched her dress. When I saw her, my heart began to race and anxiety started to take hold of me. I turned away and walked into the next room. I could hear more people coming into the lobby now as I moved to the sitting room at the back of the parlor. Here there were wooden tables with matching chairs, a few sofas, and a counter with two coffee makers. I sat at one of the tables, crossed my arms, and put my head down. I listened as Brindy's father welcomed more and more people to the visitation. Through the noise, I tried to calm myself and prepare for the moment when I was going to walk up the aisle and say goodbye to my best friend. Suddenly, I heard someone enter the room and I lifted my head. It was Mr. Embry. He smiled and walked over. He lifted his hand and wiped a tear from my cheek. I hadn't even realized I'd been crying. Hey, Jesse. Your mom and dad tell me that you seem to think that it's your fault what happened. You know that's not true, right? The waterworks started. My eyes stung from the tears that began to stream down my face. <laughs> well... Just... No, 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 no. Stop that now. You can't blame yourself, and Nat and I don't either. You hear me? Come here. He knelt and held out his arms, and I ran to them. Inside his arms, I felt a moment of peace. A single second of tranquility inside all of the madness. That's when it came. That terrible, awful sound. The foghorn came again for the first time since the day Brindelin died, as loudly and as suddenly as it had in the woods. I pushed away from Mr. Embry, and he looked at me with worry. I could see in his face that he couldn't hear it. There was a clamor in the next room people began to shout and bicker back and forth. He stood and turned quickly, running out of the room in a hurry. Everything seemed to happen in slow motion. I made my way out of the room, 
following Mr. Embry, but only half jogging. The foghorn sound was short and intermittent now, resembling an alarm more than ever. Mourners, friends and family of the Embrys were standing around with confused and shocked faces and whispering to each other. My own parents were among them. When my mother spotted me, she called to me. Jesse, come here. I was following and watching Mr. Embry, who went to his wife. She was standing over her daughter's empty casket. The foghorn alarm that no one but me seemed to hear couldn't drown out her cries. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.